Okay, if you would bow with me in prayer and we'll study the Word of God. Our Heavenly Father, uh, we are so grateful for the privilege that we have of coming together as your children, brothers and sisters in your family. We thank you for all that you do in our lives. We thank you especially for the salvation that you have freely provided for us by putting our trust in your Son. And it's always our prayer, Lord, for our services that you will bring those into our midst who have yet to trust Jesus as Savior and that your Spirit will draw them and they'll put their trust in him and pass from death to life. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for its clarity. We thank you for its direction in our lives. Help us to be faithful to you, to be faithful to your word, to be faithful to live out your truths in our lives every day. Thank you, Lord. We give you praise in Jesus' name. Remember the closing verses of chapter 20 is Paul's address to the Ephesian elders. He has asked them to come about 30 miles to Miletus, where he meets with them, and he has some important things to impart for them to them, some important things that he wants them to know that are going to be crucial for the, the existence of the church at Ephesus and crucial for it to continue and to grow and to continue in the ministry that God set it apart to do. Now, in a way, the chapter, end of chapter 20 and beginning of chapter 21 are kind of bookends. The end of chapter 20, we see Paul's concern for the churches, particularly the church at Ephesus. Paul calls for these elders. He calls them to feed the flock. He calls them to guard the flock. Chapter 21 is kind of the other side of that coin. In chapter 21, verses 1 to 14, we see the church's concern for Paul. And they are so concerned for Paul, so much so, that they try to dissuade him from doing God's will. Now that seems kind of odd, but we'll try to get to what was behind that. So in the latter part of chapter 20, Paul's concern for the churches, particularly the church at Ephesus, and the earlier part of chapter 21 we see the church's concern for Paul. Look with me at verse 25. Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. That's kind of the premise here. Paul is saying, this is my last opportunity. This is, uh, I, I sense that I will never see any of you again. This is my last opportunity to impart some really important things to you and to the church that you lead. And so Paul says, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. And in verse 26, he says, Therefore, I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Paul here has reference to Ezekiel 33, verses 1 to 9. Paul is saying, I, am, I was not an unfaithful watchman 
Quite the opposite, I was a faithful watchman. I did my duty. I warned you. I sounded the alarm. Paul Imes has a great illustration of what a watchman did. He said this, In Isaiah's time, watchmen were posted on the city walls or on the hilltops near the city. Their purpose was to stay awake, stay alert, and warn the people of danger. In Isaiah 21, verse 11, we read of a man approaching a watchman and inquiring about the current state of things. Watchman, he asked, what of the night? And the watchman gives him an answer. And then Imes makes this application for you and for me. As Christians, this may happen to us. We are told by Peter in 1 Peter chapter 3 and verse 15 that we are to be prepared to give an answer to everyone that asks us the reason for the hope within us. We are to be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks us for the reason for the hope within us. Well, as F.F. Bruce said, like the trustworthy watchman in Ezekiel 33, Paul had sounded the trumpet aloud so that all in the province of Asia had heard if there were any who paid no heed, their blood would be upon their own heads. So Paul begins by saying, I'm innocent. I have done my duty. I have declared that uh, the gospel, I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel of God. Now, what Paul is saying here is, I shared with you that which was pleasant to share, but I also shared with you that which is unpleasant. You know, everyone loves to do the pleasant things in ministry, right? We, we like to do the things that garner people's approval. We like to do the things that garner people's praise. But what Paul said is, I didn't, I didn't do the things just that would garner your praise. I did the things that were needful. When there were unpleasant duties to do, I did them. I didn't shrink back from them. And so Paul, as one writer said, refers again to the nature of his preaching as not hesitating, which is a graphic phrase. I have not shrunk back as a foolish parent might withhold necessary medicine from a child because it would be unpleasant to proclaim to them the whole will of God. Ministry, and this is the key, ministry entails as much which is unpleasant to say as what is pleasant. People must be confronted at time with truth they do not like to hear. Paul said, I didn't shrink back from any part of ministry. I didn't shrink back from sharing with you, Ephesians, the word of God. Those things that were pleasant, those things that were unpleasant, I did not shrink back from them in any way, shape, or form. And then, starting in verse 28, especially through verse 31, Paul talks about his charge to these elders. He warns them of coming persecution. He warns them especially of coming apostasy. There are those who would fall away from the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are those who would teach a false gospel. And in case the elders at Ephesus somehow thought that that would come from outside the church, Paul makes it clear to them, you have to be careful about those teachers inside the church. Look at me, with me at verse 28. 
Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock, even from your own number. Now you see, the Ephesian elders might have thought, well, we have to be careful about those coming in from the outside. We have to be careful about false teachers infiltrating us from the outside. But what Paul is saying here is we have to be really careful about being infiltrated from within the church. There would be those who would introduce errant doctrines. And not only did that happen in Ephesus, but it's happened all throughout the church history. That false doctrines have been introduced, many of them from within the fold of those who are Christians and have used that position to introduce errant doctrine. In a moment, I'm going to share with you, and we're going to do it quickly because we do have a lot to cover this morning, but I'm going to share with you nine marks of a cult, nine marks of false teaching. I think it's important for believers to be warned. That's what Paul's doing here. He's warning these believers. He's warning these, especially these leaders, these leaders, these elders of the church at Ephesus. Keep watch over yourselves. Do you notice he begins with himself with them first? He begins with them. They must keep watch over themselves first. How do they keep watch? As we, go in in the, as we go on in this passage, we learn that the way any believer keeps watch over themselves, and in particular, any leader in the church keeps watch over themselves, is by being in the Word of God. Every believer should be in the Word of God, but especially every leader of the church should be regularly in the Word of God. And I, I tell you, as I, as I study through this passage, not just this time, but I've taught this passage before, we have elders who are in the Word of God. You guys ought to be thankful for the elders God has set apart for Del Rio Bible Church. We have elders who are in the Word of God, who seek to do the Word of God. Paul said, you've got to begin with yourself to these elders. You have to begin with yourself. You have to be sure that you're in the Word of God, that you're studying the Word of God, that you're allowing your life to be changed by the Word of God. And that's where it begins. Keep watch over yourselves and the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God which he bought with his own blood now, there's a common misunderstanding about the leadership in the church and what the New Testament teaches about leadership in the church. I want you to notice something. First of all, I want you to look at verse 17. Remember from Miletus, Paul sent, Ephesus, sent to Ephesus for the what group? Elders, you should circle that or highlight it or whatever, if you use electronic or paper, whatever you use, you should highlight that. Paul sends for the elders. So he is speaking to this group we call elders in verse 28. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you what? 
Overseers. It's not a different group, it's the same group. They are called elders in one place, they are called overseers in another place, as if that's not enough. When you read on, he says, be shepherds. That word shepherd has the idea of pastor, be pastors of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. My point is this, that in the New Testament, the leadership of the church is called the same group, the same person is called by three names, and I'll explain uh, in a moment the difference in those names. The leadership are called elders. The leadership are called overseers, or some of your translations may say bishops. And the leadership are called pastors and told to pastor or shepherd the flock of God. Now, what's the difference in these words? Why three synonyms? These are synonyms for the same person. In other words, churches don't have elders and bishops, elders and overseers, pastors and elders. It's the same person. The terms are synonymous. Synonymous. The word elder is from the Greek word presbyteros, which is the title or the dignity of the office. The title or the dignity of the office. One writer said about elders, this was the traditional term for the Jewish community and religious leaders. It emphasizes the need for church leaders to be spiritually mature. It emphasizes the need for church leaders to be spiritually mature. The second term used of this same group is that of overseers or bishops. We see it here in Acts 20, 28. The Greek word is episkopos. Episkopos, we get our word episkopol from that word, episkopos. And it is the duty or the function of the elder. In other words, the word elder is the dignity or title of the office. The word overseer or bishop is the duty or function. That's what an elder does is oversee the church. The word episkopos means to look for, to look for, to care for is the idea. So those who are set apart as elders in the church, their job is to be overseers, that is to care for, to take care of the body. And one way that they do that is what Paul is saying here by Guarding the body against false teaching. Guarding the body against false teaching. The third term in Greek is poimeno, and it's translated shepherd or pastor, and it's the manner in which they do the work. So elder is the title or the dignity, overseer is the duty or the function, and pastor or shepherd is is the manner in which the work is done. And we'll say more about that in just a moment. So it's important to understand that these three terms refer to the same group and the same person. They were elders, overseers, and pastors or shepherds. Each one of them and all of them together as a group. The, the titles, the names, are synonymous. That's important. That's the biblical leadership of the church that we read about. Well, 
speaking of the manner of doing the work, that of being shepherds, one writer said, the literal shepherd pursued and still pursues an exacting call, and one as old as Abel, he must find grass and water in a dry and stony land, protect his charges from the weather and from fiercer creatures, and retrieve any stray animal. That is a great analogy, a great illustration of what church leadership does. It's a great illustration of what church leadership does. Just as a literal shepherd must find grass and water, so the leaders of the church, the elders, overseers, shepherds, pastors of the church must find, must feed the flock, must feed the flock, must find the grass and water of the word of God. Or to use more biblical terms, the milk of the word of God and the meat of the word of God. We should never stop at the milk. Remember that's what Peter said? We should, and, uh, and the writer of Hebrews said, we should never stop at the milk of the word but go on to the meat. Well, as part of the elder's job, part of the shepherd's job, part of the overseer's job to feed the flock, to feed the flock, it's another part to protect, as the writer said here, to protect his charges from the weather and from fiercer creatures. Here, Paul says the creature is the savage wolves that are the false teachers. And he uses the term wolves for, uh, to describe these false teachers. And as with the literal shepherd, the elder of the church must do what they can to retrieve and he lost animals. Matthew Henry, great older expositor of the word of God, said they must feed the church, these shepherds. They must lead the sheep of Christ into the green pastures. They must lay meat before them, must feed them with wholesome doctrine, and must see that nothing is wanting that is necessary in order to their being nourished up to eternal life. So they must feed the church of God and they must watch over the church of God because there, there are those who seek to introduce false doctrine. Now, Paul doesn't name the false doctrine in this passage, but we see it developed as we continue to read and study in the New Testament. But I want to take just a few minutes of our time together to talk about the nine marks of the cult the first four are the most important. They're the ones that every believer should be acquainted with and every believer should be, should be clear on. Uh, the others are important as well, but they're of a lesser uh, importance. So let's look at nine marks. Uh, I, I, where this list comes from is I compiled several lists. There are some great books if you want to study about the cults and want to study uh, about their background and their, their teaching. Uh, there are a couple of great books. Josh McDowell has, McDowell has a book called uh, The Marks, excuse me, uh, it's Understanding the Cults. Uh, Anthony Hokema has a book entitled The Four Major Cults. Walter Martin has a book entitled Kingdom of the Cults. Hank Hanegraaff is another great source uh, at equip.org, E-Q-U-I, P.org, some great tools to help us to 
be warned about cults. So let me quickly go through these because we got a lot to, to do this morning. The first mark of a cult is it has a source of authority other than or in addition to the Bible. It has a source of authority other than or in addition to the Bible. For instance, the Mormons have the Book of Mormon, the, the um, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses have Watchtower, uh, and so on and so forth. I, I don't have time to go into all those, but if you research those, you'll find they have another source, a different source, a source of authority other than or in addition to the Bible. A along with that is the fact that they reject historic Christianity. They reject historic Christianity. They say that somehow the Bible is inadequate or the Bible has been misunderstood through all these centuries and they have finally recovered the true meaning of the Bible, uh, but they have a source of authority other than the Bible. Or they say that the church has been in apostasy and they have recovered the truth. So the first mark of a cult, the first mark of false teaching is a source of authority other than or in addition to the Bible. The second mark of a cult, and, and you realize I'm giving you the Cliff Notes version, right? You realize it's much deeper and there's much more to be studied. I'm kind of giving you the fruit of the study. I hope that some of you will take up the study. The second mark of a cult is salvation by works. Salvation by works. That is, they deny justification, justification by grace through faith. They deny that you're saved by faith alone. They add works to faith to, for salvation. So they believe in a salvation of works. Uh, you have to earn your salvation. Salvation is not a free gift. Grace is not a free gift, but it's a reward for keeping certain conditions or keeping certain requirements according to the cult. The third mark of a cult, and this maybe you should star because it is a biggie, and that is the devaluation of Jesus Christ. The devaluation of Jesus Christ. In other words, they deny the deity of Christ. In 1 John chapter 2, verses 22 and 23, John tells us that's the mark of a false teacher is that they deny the deity of Christ. In 1 John chapter 4, verses 2 and 3, is the other side of the coin. These false teachers deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. They deny either the deity of Jesus Christ or they deny the humanity of Jesus Christ. In uh, Josh McDowell's book, Understanding the Cults, he lays out, just, just to take two for example, because they're probably the two biggest cults, Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. Uh, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, McDowell says this, the Jesus of the cults is not the Jesus of the Bible, 
According to the theology of the Jehovah's Witnesses, Jesus did not exist as God from all eternity, but was rather the first creation of Jehovah God. Before coming to earth, he was Michael, the archangel, the head of all the angels. He is not God. That's Jehovah's Witness doctrine. The Mormons, and I tell you, the Mormons are particularly difficult because people usually look upon their lifestyle and they, they are drawn to their lifestyle, drawn to the fact that they are normally uh, ethical people. Uh, what, what people miss about them is that they'd better be there trying to earn their way to heaven. They're trying to earn their way to heaven. Obviously, we know that salvation is by grace through faith. But the Mormons say this, the Mormon church, and this is again from Josh McDowell, the Mormon church does not accept the unique deity of Jesus Christ. He is to them one of many gods, the firstborn spirit child, spiritually conceived by a sexual union between the heavenly father and a heavenly mother. He was also the spirit brother of Lucifer in his pre-existent state. His incarnation was accomplished by the physical union of the heavenly father and the human Mary. That's not the Jesus of the Bible. That's not the Jesus you and I believe in. That's not the Jesus that... And let, let me lay out what the Bible teaches about Jesus. What does the Bible teach about the person of Christ? Dr. Charles Ryrie has a great outline. The Bible teaches the deity of Jesus Christ. The deity of Jesus Christ. He is not just a God. He didn't come into existence at some point. He is the God, the eternal God, always was God, is God, will be God. He possesses, the scripture teaches, the attributes which God alone has, eternal, uh, eternality, omnipresence, omniscience, omnipotence. Jesus possesses those attributes of God. Number two, he performs works which only God can, forgiveness of sins. He gives spiritual life. He resurrects from the dead. He will be the judge. Number three, he was given names and titles of deity in the scripture. Number four, he claimed to be God. That's his deity. That's his deity. His humanity, Luke chapter 2, 52, tells us that he had a human body. He grew and developed, Luke chapter 2, verse 52. Number two, he exhibits, he exhibits characteristics of human beings. He was hungry. He was tired. He wept. He loved. Number three, he was called by human names and designations. The bottom line is this. The Bible teaches the full deity and perfect humanity of Jesus Christ in one person. The full deity and perfect humanity of Jesus Christ in one person without mixture, without a change of one to the other, and without division. And you can check out Romans chapter 1. Verses 3 and 4. The third mark 
of a cult is the devaluation of Jesus Christ. The fourth mark of a cult is the denial of the Trinity or an inadequate view of the Trinity. A denial of the Trinity or an inadequate view of the Trinity. The fifth characteristic, and those four, those four are, are crucial, a source of authority other than or in addition to the scripture, salvation by works, not by grace, the devaluation of Jesus Christ, either devaluing his deity or his humanity, and fourth, the denial of the Trinity. The others are kind of the second tier, I might call them. Uh, number five, uh, the, the group as the exclusive community of, of the saved, that is, they claim to be the only ones, the exclusive people of God. Number six, usually a strong charismatic leader, at least at the beginning, that brought the group into existence. For Mormons, it was Joseph Smith. For Christian scientists, Mary, Mary Baker, Eddie. For Jehovah's Witnesses, Charles Taze Russell, were the personalities that brought these into existence. And so they usually begin with a strong charismatic leader Number seven, the seventh mark of a cult, is that of false prophecy, false prophecy. And there, I don't have time to get into all of the false prophecy and the way uh, the, the prophecies that were made and did not come true and were later changed to cover that up. I don't have time to go into all that, but uh, if you study some of those sources, you can find that. Number eight, changing theology and subsequent practice, changing theology and subsequent practice. And then number nine, deceptive devil talk, saying one thing publicly and another thing privately. Saying one thing publicly and another thing privately. Well, what Paul is trying to say to the Ephesian elders, leaders of the church, is that there is coming a time when even out of their own group, there will be those who will teach false doctrine. Paul says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves, and he uses that illustration of these false teachers, those who tear the flesh, those who destroy their victims. That's what false teachers do. That's what false teachers do. It's reminiscent of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7 and verse 15, where he said, Watch out for false prophets. They come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. That's a warning, both by Paul and by Jesus, to us that false teachers don't wear a badge that says false teacher. They don't wear a name tag that says false teacher. But you're going to know them by their lifestyle. You're going to know them by their errant doctrine. And that's why Paul is telling these elders, one of their most important duties is to teach the Word of God, to, to study it themselves and be aware of it themselves, to teach the Word of God to the people that God has given them charge over. It's one of the most important things that a leader can do is teach the Word of God to protect the flock so that the flock can make a determination between true doctrine and false doctrine. 
and maybe more importantly, not to just overlook it and say, well, they're nice people. What Paul is saying is behind those nice people is ferocious wolves because they destroyed the people of God with their errant doctrine. Well, one writer said, this is the business of the officers of the church. They are not to run the church, but they are to see that the church is fed the word of God. Uh, so, many, so many churches see their, their elders, their leadership group, whatever they call them, they see those who run the church. Elders, overseers, pastors slash shepherds, don't run the church. That's not our job. Our job, rather, is to teach the word of God, to teach the word of God, to, to protect you from false doctrine, to make you aware of false doctrine. It's so important to do. So be on your guard, verse 31, Paul says, remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Uh, we've looked at Paul's tears before, but what we see here is that this was such an important thing to Paul, teaching the word of God to the church, protecting the word of God from false teachers. It was such an important thing that for Paul, it was a very emotional thing. For Paul, it was a very emotional thing. Well, Paul then says he was constantly on guard. He constantly warned them. And starting in verse 32, he talks about some things that they should not do, some things they should avoid. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among those who are sanctified. What Paul said is that what you need, what you leaders of Ephesus, what you elders of Ephesus need, what you need is to be built up by the Word of God. You need to be in the Word of God. Why? Because the Word of God builds you up. Why? Because the Word of God sets you apart to God, sets you apart from the world. The Word of God has a teaching effect. The Word of God has a sanctifying effect, setting you and I apart so that we are living out the Word of God in our lives and we're not living like the people around us. We're not living like the world around us. Well, Paul goes on to say, I have not coveted anyone's silver or clothing. The first thing he tells them is they should not be living for money. They should not be living for money. First Timothy chapter 6, Paul has more to say to Timothy who is pastoring eldering, overseeing the Ephesian church by this time. Paul says here to these leaders, don't live for money. By the way, I don't have time to turn to one of the most important passages about elders. It's 1 Peter 5, verses 1 to 4. Please look that up, not in the next 15 minutes. Okay. <laughs> he said, I've not coveted anyone's silver or gold. You yourselves know... And this, this is the second thing, that they should work. He said, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs 
and the needs of my companions. In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must keep the weak. We must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. They were not to live for money. They were not to be lazy. They were not to live selfishly. Verse 36, when he had said this, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Now, that completes chapter 20. As we get into chapter 21, the, Paul kind of changes gears there. Uh, in the end of chapter 20, we have Paul's concern for the churches. But now in chapter 21, especially verses 1 to 14, we have the concern of the churches for Paul. But the problem is their concern is not that Paul accomplished the will of God. Their, their issue is that they want to keep Paul from difficulty. They want to keep Paul from difficulty. And so while their intent is good, wanting to be concerned for Paul, they go so far in their concern for him that they try to dissuade him from following the will of God for his life. And there's a lesson in that for us. We need to be really careful as we share with others about their lives that we are not opposing God's will in another person's life. You know, none of us, especially I think we see it in our prayer, none of us wants to see others suffer. And so it's natural, I think, for us to pray that they won't or that God would get them out of suffering. But what if suffering, what if difficulty in their lives is exactly what God thinks they need? It's not up to me to make the decision of what another person needs in their lives. It's not up to me if they feel strongly that the word of God is directing them. It is not up to me to change their direction. It is up to me that no matter how much I dislike the pain that they're going to go through or are going through, that I accept that that may be the will of God. So a couple of things I, I want us to see in this chapter 21, verses 1 to 14. Uh, there's, a, there's a great statement by one of the early, early, uh, lived something like three or 400 years ago, a writer by the name of Fenelon, F-E-N-E-L-O-N. Uh, Fenelon, he's, he's an interesting guy to read. Uh, if you want a guy that you would sit down next to and he'd tell you if the will of God for suffering is, if the will of God for you is suffering, do it. That's what he would do. The will of God for you is difficulty, then take it. Uh, but he's good. He's good. He said this, the more God loves you, the less he spares you. The more God loves you, the less he spares you. We take it just the opposite, don't we? Don't we turn it around? 
Don't we turn it around and say, the more God loves you, the easier life becomes. That's not true. And it hurts believers when we tell them that. Because they think, if I'm going through this difficulty, if I'm going through this suffering, I must not be loved as I should. Maybe I'm doing something wrong. Maybe you're doing everything right. We do them a disservice when we try to dissuade them from the will of God. I love this statement. I can't say that I would want to embrace living it out. It's hard. It's hard. I don't like pain. I don't like difficulty. I don't like suffering. I don't like to see people in pain. I don't like to see people having difficulty. I don't like to see people suffering. But Fenelon's right. The more God loves you, the less he spares you. In case you're wondering about that, just look at Job. Just look at Job. Let me, let me put it into a statement that I think is true for our lives. The organizing principle of a Christian's life must be the glory of God. The organizing principle of a Christian's life must be the glory of God. What do I mean by that? Above all, above all, you and I should be concerned in life, not of living a suffering-free life, not of living a difficulty-free life, but in living a life that makes God's name shine and lets people know that when they look at us, they see God. So the organizing principle of our lives must be the glory of God, making God's name famous. One writer said the Christian life is not an exemption from pain, It's not a shield from heartache and pain. Another has said this, to be empowered by the Spirit cannot mean to be shielded from all heartache and pain. The notion that only good things happen to faithful people was put to rest on Friday afternoon at Calvary. Let me say that again because it's so good. The notion that only good things happen to faithful people was put to rest on Friday afternoon at Calvary. Rather, the Spirit gives meaning in our struggles, the conviction that God can use whatever abuse, heartache, and tragedy we encounter in our attempt to be faithful to bring about God's purpose. One of Oswald Chambers' favorite saying, if you've spent any time reading through my utmost for his highest, one of his absolute favorite sayings is, you and I are to be broken bread and poured out wine. You and I are to be broken bread and poured out wine. He said this, the joy of the Lord is your strength. Where do the saints get their joy from? If we did not know some saints we would say, oh, he or she has nothing to bear. Lift the veil 
The fact that the peace and the light and the joy of God are there is proof that the burden is there too. The, the burden God places squeezes the grapes and out comes the wine. Most of us see the wine only. No power on earth or in hell can conquer the spirit of God and the human spirit. It is an inner unconquerableness. If you have the wine in you, that is, if you are a whiner, that's what he's saying. If you are a whiner, kick it out ruthlessly. It is a positive crime to be weak in God's strength. Let me try to summarize with chapter 21, uh, kind of go through it here. After we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out the sea. And a lot of this, verses 1 to 14, is kind of giving us the steps they took, the ships they, they, they went on, the stops they made. After we... Uh, after we had torn ourselves away from them, we put out to sea and sailed straight for Kos. The next day we went to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. We found a ship crossing over to Phoenicia, went on board and set sail. After sighting Cyprus and passing to the south of it, we, la we sailed on to Syria. We landed at Tyre, where our ship was to unload its cargo. Finding the disciples there, we stayed with them seven days. Now, I want you to underline the next phrase. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go to Jerusalem. Through the Spirit, they urged Paul not to go through Jerusalem. Now, the church at Tyre probably came into existence, uh, according to chapter 11 and verse 19 of the book of Acts, probably came into existence after the persecution of the early church that follows Stephen's death. Now, I want you to think through this with me. If the church at Tyre was one of the churches that came into existence when the believers in Jerusalem were scattered from Jerusalem and went to all the places surrounding Judea and they, they uh, preached the gospel to Jew and Gentile alike, churches were born, Tyre was probably one of those churches. Now think about this. Who persecuted the early church? Who was the biggest persecutor of the early church? Paul. As individuals, the Jews, yes, of course. But as individuals, Paul was one of the biggest persecutors of the early church. Who was there giving their approval to Stephen's stoning to death? Saul or Paul was there. Think about this. They stop, their ship stops at Tyre where it's going to unload cargo and Paul the persecutor is welcomed by Tyre the church that was born out of his persecution. Folks, if you want to see Christian love in action, that is sure it. That is sure it. Now, the question comes up, and i got to really uh, quickly <laughs> go through this. The question comes up. They're urging Paul not to go on, and so some people say, well, 
Paul was stubbornly resisting God's will. They were telling him to stop. That was God's will. Did he make some kind of mistake? And I don't think he did. And I'll tell you why real quickly. Five reasons that Paul was right to go on. Paul was right to go to Jerusalem. Paul was right to go to Rome. Five reasons for that. Acts 20, 22, Acts 21, 14 tell us that it was God's will for Paul to continue to Jerusalem. God had spoken to Paul. Acts 23, 1, Paul says, I have a good conscience. There was nothing on his conscience that he was somehow disobeying the will of God. Acts 23, 11 tells us that God was uh, God comforted Paul. And it uh, implies that if God comforted him, that Paul hadn't stubbornly refused God's will. The fourth is Acts chapter 9, verses 15 and 16, when that's the first of the accounts of Paul's conversion, and God sent Ananias to talk to him. You remember what Ananias, what God told Ananias to tell him? I want you to tell him how much he's going to suffer for my name. For all those reasons, and the fifth reason is, and I don't have time to go through the specifics of this, but the fifth reason is that Luke seems to purposely parallel Jesus' last trip to Jerusalem with Paul's last trip. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed... Uh, Verse, verse 6, I can't, I can't skip that. After saying goodbye to each other, we went aboard the ship and they returned home. And before that, it tells us that all the disciples and their wives and children accompanied us out of the city and there on the beach we knelt to pray. In one week, they had bonded so greatly that they all went to the beach to see Paul off. We continued our voyage from Tyre and landed at Ptolemais where we greeted the brothers, stayed with them for a day. Leaving the next day, we reached Caesarea and stayed at the house of Philip, the evangelist, one of the seven. Remember what the, who the seven are in Acts chapter 6? They are what we sometimes call the first deacons. They are the, sevens, they are the seven that, that resolve the dispute between the Grecian widows and the uh, Hebrew widows. Philip was one of them. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. After we had been there a number of days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea. We have seen Agabus earlier in the book of Acts where he was predicting a famine for the entire Roman world. He came down from Judea Coming over to us, he took Paul's belt, tied his own hands and feet with it, and said, the Holy Spirit says, in this way the Jews of Jerusalem will bind the owner of this belt and will hand him over to the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul to not do the will of God. That's not what the text says. What the text says, we pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. For him not to go up to Jerusalem, I deeply believe would have been for him to reject the will of God for his life. 
It's a warning to you and to me not to take the easy path or the easy road to do the will of God no matter how much well-meaning Christians love us and don't want to see us hurting. It's right for us to choose the will of God. When we heard this, we and the people there pleaded with Paul not to go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, Why are you weeping and breaking my heart? I am ready not only to be bound, but also to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. Now I love verse 14. When he would not be dissuaded, we gave up and said, The Lord's will be done. Hallelujah! They finally got to it. The Lord's will be done. Let me summarize real quickly. The organizing principle of a Christian's life must be the glory of God, making God's name famous. Number two, to live for the glory of God is not to be shielded from difficult circumstances and pain, but to glorify God through them. Number three, God revealed what would happen to Paul to both test his resolve and prepare him for what was coming. He wasn't trying to stop Paul. He was trying to prepare Paul. Number four, we must, and, and this is so important, don't miss this one, we must identify with God's will in others' believers, in other believers' lives, not our sympathy with what they are going through. That's a tough one for all of us. We must identify with God's will in other believers' lives, not our sympathy with what they are going through. We must pray for them and support them accordingly. And last but not least, ultimately, Richard says this, ultimately our decisions must be guided by the Holy Spirit, not the emotions and opinions of other people. Let's pray. Lord God, there's almost too much here for us to grasp with our puny little minds. To grasp your greatness and your glory, which requires us to see beyond what's in front of us. Which requires us to see beyond what's in front of us to you. And help us always to remember that your glory is what's most important to us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.